0: The following message is by Dr. Steve Lee of Emmanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emmanuel Community Church can be found online at www.emanuelcommunity.org. We're looking at Luke 18 verses 15 to 17, and the title is Like a Child, and the text reads, you can follow it along in your Bible, or you can also look up here, and it says, Now they were bringing even infants to him, that he might touch them. And when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. But Jesus called uh, called them to him, saying, Let the children come to me, and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. Let's pray. Lord, help us to understand the the meaning of this message that you've given um, to your disciples uh, and to us. Open our eyes to be able to understand what the essence of this message is to uh, have a childlike heart uh, before you. And so we open our hearts to the ministry of your Holy Spirit and ask that you would work in us this hour, for we pray these things in Christ's name, amen. As I said, um, the 18th chapter of Luke opens with these back-to-back parables that Jesus taught on prayer. In the first parable, Jesus Jesus teaches us the need for patience and perseverance, in our prayer, through this example of a desperate widow coming before an unjust judge. But ultimately we saw that she was able to get what she needed in her desperation out of her persistence in prayer. In The second parable that we looked at last week, Jesus taught the disciples about the heart that truly understands this gospel of grace. By comparing the prayer of a Pharisee with the prayer of the tax collector. And, uh, you know, I think one of the insightful things in this parable to me was, I think sort of confronted directly about a sense of self-righteousness. I think a lot of us would sort of shrink back and be um, pretty resistant to that accusation. You know, I don't, I don't think I'm self-righteous. I, I don't feel that way about myself. And yet, I think the way it often gets revealed is, the way that we regard other people, you know, this sort of spirit of judgment and condemnation when we look down on others like this Pharisee did at this tax collector and, and this, the sense that if we really are a person swept up by grace and understanding your need for mercy, then how can you regard another person that way like the Pharisee regarded this tax collector or other, quote, sinners that he didn't approve of? Uh, And then these two stories are followed up by this account of Jesus welcoming babies and little children. And I would argue that this episode that we're looking at this morning seems so incidental, almost trivial, that it, it feels out of place in light of the weightier teachings that are happening in these later chapters of Luke's gospel. But what's interesting to me is that three out of the four gospel writers include this story of Jesus holding little children and blessing them. In other words, there seems to be something so memorable, so remarkable about the way that Jesus interacted with children that it left this deep impression on the hearts of his disciples. And so even years later, as those original disciples, the eyewitnesses to the life of Jesus, are recounting the stories that they remember of his life, it seems that the story of him with children just kept coming up again and again until it found its place in three out of the four Gospels. Now, there is undoubtedly a spiritual lesson found in this passage. But before we jump to it, I want to dwell a bit on the more basic fact that simply Jesus loved and valued children, okay? I, I, I think we can sort of skip over that observation too quickly, but I want to dwell there the first part of this message is simply this is the way Jesus treated little kids. I think children occupy a very interesting place in our society. Um, we can do things to children that you would never dare do to an adult, right? Um, You can leave them crying for an hour in a crib, which, let's be honest, is just a glorified baby prison, right? (laughs) It's got bars and everything, right? Uh, Maybe there's a little mobile hanging over it. Um, But the kid can't get out and could be screaming bloody murder. But You just leave them there because you're ferberizing them, you know, and training them how to sleep. You can make a child sit in a chair and stare at a wall for 30 minutes against their will on a, quote, timeout, right? The only other place you could probably do this is prison, right? Um, And yet we do this to our children, right? Why does society say this is okay to do to our children? Why? Well, because there is an understanding that children are not mature enough to have all the rights and freedoms that adults enjoy. They're under the supervision of adults. And so as adults, it's easy to forget what life is like as a child, isn't it? You have to eat whatever your parents feed you. You you have to go to bed when your parents tell you to, even if you're not even the least bit sleepy, right? Right? I mean, when we were little, our bedtime was like 8 o'clock, all the way, I think, up to junior high. And it drove us crazy because my brother and I were never sleepy when it was bedtime. We would gripe about it and complain all the time, but it didn't matter. When it was 8 o'clock, you're headed to bed. And we would say, all our classmates get to stay up till 10 and whatever. It didn't matter. 8 o'clock was our bedtime. This is the life of a child. In, in a world ruled by adults, children are often regarded as background noise. They have no real status. They don't have much to offer in, a, in an adult world. And so it's so easy to marginalize them, to disregard them, to ignore them, to, to even abuse them. They, and, and in truth, this seems to be the sentiment captured by the disciples, in this story, as these little children were being brought to Jesus, it says that when the parents brought them so that Jesus could touch them and bless them, the disciples became angry, and they began rebuking the parents. They saw it as an unwanted nuisance, and so I think out of a spirit of trying to protect Jesus, they began to try to chase away these children and these parents. Why are you bothering Jesus? Don't you know what an important man he is? How busy he is? He's got a lot more important things to do than to go around touching all your children and blessing them. But what's interesting is that Jesus rebukes the disciples, telling them, in verse 16, Let the children come to me, and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. I think one of the most striking observations about Jesus is how often he went out of his way to show love to those in our society that were deemed the most unimportant or even worthless, whether prostitutes or lepers or crippled or widows or Gentiles or Samaritans. And I would say that in the same way, children are easy to disregard. Children are easy to treat condescendingly. But what's interesting to me is the dignity and the love that Jesus showed to them. And I think the same heart is to be reflected in his disciples. I'm so thankful for the ways that so many of you have stepped up to volunteer in our children's ministry here at ICC. I know that uh, it is a sacrifice for many of you coming to church on Sunday. You would much rather be here in this room in the gym worshiping with fellow adults and feeling that you are being ministered to rather than having to go to these cold hallways in the winter and hot hallways in the summer and minister to our children. But it's a sacrifice that many of you make. In fact, a whole bunch of you are not even hearing what I'm saying right now because you're actually in those hallways right now serving. You're going to only hear this on podcasts later. I'm thankful that our children's ministry here at ICC is not just an afterthought, something we just slap together just to keep kids out of our way so that we can have an undistracted worship as adults. My prayer is that all of the children of ICC will grow up knowing that Jesus loves them, not only because the Bible tells them so, but because of the experience here in this church every time they enter through these doors and receive God's love through us. I pray this not only for when they are in church, but also when they are in your homes. I think we wish that we were all this kind of parent, right? Who would come home and spend the first 15 minutes after work giving our kids quality time, asking them how their day was at school. And after dinner, we would wrestle with them and play board games with them. And help them out with their homework before we tuck them in with a 15-minute bedtime story. I mean, We all wish this is what life was like in our homes every day, don't we? But I think the truth is, after a long day in the office, this may be a more accurate picture of what happens in many of our homes. Maybe you're trying to get additional work done that you couldn't finish during regular business hours. Or maybe, frankly, you just want to be left alone with your iPad or with your favorite television show that you recorded on your DVR. And we may really struggle to not just give our kids our undivided attention, but frankly, any attention at all. What we really hope is that they figure out a way to preoccupy themselves so that they just stay out of our hair and give mommy-me time for the next couple of hours, right? And one of the things that I want to say is, you know, the goal here is not to hear a message like this this morning and go, yeah, you, you got it right. I'm a bad parent. I don't love my kids nearly as much as I wish I would. And then just grit our teeth and just commit ourselves to being better. I have one of the things that hearing regularly at this pulpit is this is a work of God that needs to be done in our life to know that this heart of Jesus for our children is a heart that he can give to us. we seek it in prayer. This has to be a divine work in our lives as God ministers to us and shows us his heart for children, and as he changes us inwardly to love children as a reflection of his own heart. I want to sort of wrap up this first part of the message by also uh, saying something that might almost sound contradictory, but I'm going to argue is not, is that we... We devalue our kids not only when we neglect them, but also when we make idols out of them. When I say that as parents we idolize our children, I mean that we can put all of our hopes and dreams in them. And in doing this, we can put a weight on our children that becomes absolutely crushing to them. And so we sign them up for every extracurricular activity under the sun. We're chauffeuring them from one place after another, we, we, we shadow over them for every homework assignment to make sure they get good grades. And we, we constantly scold them when they don't behave properly and fail to meet the standards that we put on them. And, and, and all of this, we would say as parents, is in the hopes that they would have a good life, that they would get into a good school, that they would have a good career. And that's what's so tricky about this sin, about this insidious sin of idolizing them, is we we can always couch it in the language of love, parental love. And it all sounds so honorable. We want this for our children. But we need to be honest about whether it's truly serving them or serving our own dreams and wishes and hopes. I think the parents in this story show us that true love for our children Is about presenting them to Jesus. I think in the same way as believing parents, I think the greatest gift that we can offer our kids is to surrender them to God. You know, we have so many child dedications here at ICC, right? Every month it seems like we're doing a dedication. And I've said this on a number of occasions. Is this just a ceremony that we're going through? Because we're Christians, Or does that dedication really represent something in reality? That I offer my child to God. And when I say that we are surrendering them to God, I am saying that we are acknowledging that God has a plan for them that may be very different than our own plans for them. And in bringing our children to Jesus, what we're saying is your will be done for them, not my will. I just want to be a servant, a steward to that will that you have for them, not whatever it is that my dreams and hopes are for them. I think this is a picture of what it means to love our children that we can see in the pages of Scripture. As Jesus is blessing these children, he uses the situation, though, to illustrate a deeper spiritual truth about his kingdom. In verse 17, it says, Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. In other words, Jesus is telling the grown-ups that are surrounding him at this moment, if you really want to enter my kingdom, if you want to be saved, you have to recover something that has been lost in you in the process of growing up into adulthood. Something that these little children possess that you no longer possess. And the question is this, what is that exactly? What is it that children possess that adults lose over the course of aging? Well, before I unpack that, I want to actually show you a series of three uh, very brief videos. And they're they're only going to run about a minute each. So the whole thing is going to take us about three minutes. And some of these videos, actually, I think most of them have gone viral on social media, so you very well may have seen them before. But I think they have a way of illustrating the point I'm going to make better than any of my own words can. And the first is of a little girl just wanting to wish her mother a happy birthday. The next is of a little girl instructing her father on how to behave at a wedding they're going to, where she's a flower girl. And then the last one is of a girl coming to terms with mortality and so let's go ahead and take a look at them and then we'll go on in just a minute here
1: Are you ready? Like, so that you can't talk to people, okay? You have to. Within else. And then, you can't call my name when I'm gonna be walking down the aisle. No one can call us because we're gonna be busy walking down the aisle. No one can call our names. like. They so can't call Jojo or Hope or Samuel. And what if I just yell princess? No, it is dad. There's gonna be a bunch of people sitting and then they are just gonna hear us. And they'll gonna be like, Why are you doing that? That was a dumb place. And they're not gonna sink. And they're not gonna sink. you go daddy. And will know, but your daddy, if you're going, we'll be go. Because then you, them will know us. And dad, you can't do that. You, you do not understand what, at all. Okay? You don't understand that. <laughs> what?
0: struck you as you were watching those videos of these little children. I mean, getting beyond the cutesy factor, um, there's this earnestness and honesty that little children have that uh, they just can't hide or disguise, can they? That's, That's why children have such a hard time lying when they're little, right? Is even when they try to lie, it's all in their eyes, isn't it? Like, you know it going, come on, Johnny, did you eat that cookie, right? Because they just Wear their heart on their sleeve. They they don't have the pretenses that adults have. They don't have they haven't learned the artful skill of lying and and all of the silly games that grown ups play, right? That we that we develop over the process of maturing into adulthood. David Rakoff was a writer and journalist who died from Hodgkin's lymphoma in two thousand and twelve at the young age of 48. Toward the end of his life, as the cancer was advancing, with painful honesty, Rakoff reflected on what the cancer revealed about his character. And he writes, They say that times of crisis are the true test of one's character. I really wouldn't know since my character took a powder that year, leaving in its stead a jewel-bright hardness. I was at my very cleverest that year. Every time a complex human emotion threatened to break the surface of my consciousness, out would come a joke. There was a period during the illness when I was at my very sickest, at 115 pounds, hovering in and out of consciousness. This month and a half was the one period in my life when I was not faking it, when I was not deflecting every emotion with repartee? That it would take millions of cancer cells in my lymphatic system for me to finally shut up is sobering. Or would be were I to think about it, which, of course, I choose not to. What remains of your past if you didn't allow yourself to feel it when it happened? If you don't have your experiences in the moment? If you gloss them over with jokes or zoom past them? you end up with curiously dispassionate memories, procedural and depopulated. It's as if a neutron bomb went off and all you're left with are hospital corridors. As Rakoff confesses, rather than dealing honestly with his fears, he uses humor like a suit of armor, deflecting the threat of any real emotion from penetrating his vulnerable heart. And this led Rakoff to real, the deeper realization that the truth is throughout his life, he had always used humor to avoid anything that he didn't want to deal with. Anytime someone would get too close, anytime someone wanted to enter into that interior of his heart, he would push them away with humor, with a joke. These are the silly games that grown-ups play. Games that young children have not yet learned. For you, it may not be about blunting real human emotion with humor. Maybe for you, it's a fortress of carefully crafted arguments that always proves you're right and everyone else is wrong. Or maybe it's an intricate web of lies that you tell yourself that enables you to justify what otherwise would be totally inexcusable behavior in any other context. This is the picture of sin fully matured after years of practice in the heart of adults. And as Jesus points out, these are the very things that are going to keep you from being humble enough to humble yourselves before God and receive the mercy that he wants to give you. And he's saying what you need to do is to recover the heart of a child that heart that is humble and can come before God without pretenses and receive what He wants to give you. In her New York Times magazine article, Dana Tierney writes about the loss that she feels having abandoned the Christian faith in which she was raised as a child, growing up in an evangelical home. And she says... Most of the other atheists I know seem to feel freed or proud of their unbelief, as if they've cleverly refused to be sold snake oil. But over the years, I've come to feel I'm missing out. My friends and relatives who rely on God, the real believers, not just the churchgoers, have an expansiveness of spirit. When they walk along a stream, they don't just see water falling over rocks. The sight fills them with ecstasy. They see a realm of hope beyond this world. I just see a babbling brook. I don't get the message. When her son Luke was four years old, her husband was sent off to Iraq to cover the war for a few months. And she confesses that she was absolutely terrified every single day that he was there in Iraq. But her son Luke was strangely calm and unafraid during that whole time. And she assumed that it was because he was too young to understand what was going on. But then one night as she and her son Luke were watching television together, there was some documentary about a soldier that was on home, at home on leave, and he got married, and he was about to be redeployed to the war. And in the interview, was confessing how terrified he was now that he was married, being sent back to fight. And out of the corner of Tierney's eye, she saw her son fold his hands and close his eyes for a split second. And it confused her because they had never brought Luke to church, and they were very intentional about not talking to him about God. And this is what Tierney writes. Surprised, I said, sweetheart, what are you doing? He wouldn't tell me, but a few minutes later, he did it again. I said, you don't have to tell me, but if you want to, I'm listening. Finally, he confessed. I was saying a little prayer for Daddy. That's wonderful, Luke, I murmured, abashed that we or our modern world somehow made him embarrassed to pray for his father in his own home. It was as if that mustard seed of faith had found its way into our son, and now he was revealing that he could move mountains. Not in a church where as we gazed at the stars, but while we channel surfed. I was envious of him. Luke wasn't rattled because he believed that God would bring his father home safely. I was the one stra- only one stranded. After I saw Luke praying for his father in Iraq, I asked him when he had begun to believe in God. I don't know, he said. I've always known he exists. For Luke, all things exist. Are possible. Now, let me say this. We have to be careful not to idealize children in a romantic way. Painting a picture of them that's also false. Children are sinners just like adults are sinners, okay? They make messes. They throw tantrums. They are selfish just like adults are selfish. And yet, and yet, Jesus seems to be pointing to something that is beautiful in children that we need to recover as adults if we are going to receive the gospel message with faith. I think the truth is, while adults are often jaded and cynical, children have the capacity to trust and believe. I think while adults think that they've got everything figured out, children haven't lost the ability to be filled with wonder, and surprise, and awe. While adults overthink everything, children know how to be in the moment and simply receive what is given to them with joy. And as I said earlier, I don't think we can generate this, right? You may feel guilty going, yeah, that's me, that's me, that's me. But you can't produce a childlike heart in yourself. I think you could recognize if you don't have it. And the question that I think is placed before us today is this. Do you even want this? Is this something attractive to you? Do you desire this? Because I think if you desire it and hunger for it and ask God for it, he will give it to you. He can take an old heart and make it young again. He can take a hard heart, and make it soft again. As he said through the prophet Ezekiel, I will take out your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh, a soft heart. I think a legitimate accusation that every sincere, genuine believer ought to face in their life is you're so naive. You're so clueless to the real world. The picture that I have as I was putting this message together was of King David when the Ark of the Covenant was being brought back to the city and he danced out of pure childlike joy. And there his wife Michael was sitting in the background, utterly disgusted at her husband and saying, You look like a fool. You're supposed to be the king of Israel and look at how undignified. You make yourself look before your subjects. What are you doing, David? And David replies, I will be even more undignified than this before my Lord. I think that captures a childlike heart, a heart that is humble and broken before God. Let's pray. I think this is what Christ is inviting us to in a world dominated by adult virtues and adult agendas. Jesus touches these little children and holds them in his arm and blesses them. And he says to all the grown-ups in the room, you know, in the process of aging, you've lost something. Something very vital and precious in the eyes of God. You've lost this spirit that's in these little children of awe and wonder, of childlike trust and faith, of not having all the answers and mysteries solved and yet still being able to trust. And I, you can be frustrated and acknowledge it. You can repent of it. But like I said, I don't think you can generate this just by willpower. Or by decision. It's it's a gift of God that he can give to us through the ministry of his spirit. Like I said a minute ago, the question is, do you even want this? Do do you want to be this way? Or are you too sophisticated and too old for God? And you say, you know, I see the way some Christians are like that. And I don't want that. I don't want that in my life. I like who I am. Are you willing to give up your own wisdom to be a fool for God? Are you willing to give up your own wisdom for a childlike faith that simply holds the Father's hand and just says, I will follow you. I don't understand everything. Not everything makes sense. But I will follow. I will trust. I will obey Like I said, we can't make this happen, but we can ask God to make it happen in our hearts. And that's simply what I want to invite to you this morning. So I'm just, it's a little bit, I understand, a little, I I feel a little torn here by the way this message has played out, but if I can maybe, maybe one of the things you're really convicted about is the first part of this message, about your children, maybe you haven't don't even have kids yet but you're scared to death about becoming a parent or maybe your kids are all grown up and you worry are they going to be okay and maybe what God is inviting you to do is just pray a prayer for your children believing that God loves them and will take care of them and maybe this is a prayer of surrender I don't want my agenda for my kids my American dream lived out in them I want your kingdom dream to be lived out in them. I lay my child at your altar, Lord, to be used for your glory. And maybe the way God is convicting you through his spirit this morning is also to pray about your own heart, a heart that's grown cold or hard or dead even. And maybe what God is inviting you to do is saying, Lord, soften my heart. Give me that heart that I once had, that I once knew, and I long for. Spirit, I invite you to do that ministry in my life right now. Let's just come before the Lord in that prayer, and our worship team will come to lead us in a time of response through these songs of worship. Let's pray.